Please to Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Romans chapter 8. In Job 9.2 and again in Job 25.4, we have two different men. Job and then Bildad asking the same question. How can a man be righteous before God? You know, Job and his three friends didn't always agree on things, but uh, here's a question that they both asked and the implied answer in both cases, looking at man in and of himself, how can a man be righteous before God? Well, of himself it's impossible. He can't. And who can legitimately argue with Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way. Or uh, even in Isaiah 64, about our righteousnesses, the best we could do are as filthy rags in God's sight. So there's no hope in man. But there is hope for man. A positive answer uh, to that question of Job and Bildad, it's that facet of salvation, of Christ's salvation, that's set before us again and again in the New Testament, even as we see here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Uh, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. Or as Paul had already said in Romans 4 and verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. Or Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, or even when Abraham was told that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed, Paul says in Galatians 3, that was actually the gospel that was preached to Abraham, that even the Jews, sorry, not just the Jews, but even the Gentiles will be justified by faith in Christ. Well, in our previous hour, we attempted to give something of an overview of this glorious doctrine of justification. We did so under three heads. Bear with me in a little bit of review since we have some who were not here in morning uh, worship. Uh, Firstly, we considered the meaning of justification and pointed out it's a legal term. Something that takes place in the courts. Uh, We demonstrated that from Deuteronomy 25, from Proverbs chapter 17. And basically it means to be declared and then treated as righteous. And therefore, justification, considered in and of itself, it makes no change in us personally. It's in the record books of heaven, as it were. It's a declaration by the judge. To quote Professor John Murray, he made the point that justification is not the work of a surgeon, it is the work of a judge. And so, Professor Murray says, the surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That is not what a judge does. The judge gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. That's not something personally taking place like a surgeon. No, it's here's a verdict by the judge. And so, as it says in Romans 8.33, about uh, who can bring a charge against God's elect, and the idea no one can bring a charge at six. Well, why not? Because it's God who justifies That is, it's God who declares us righteous and then forever treats us as righteous. And then 
We considered, secondly, the necessity of justification. Why we needed this in order to be saved and made right with God. Now, obviously, it's needed because of our sin, because of our native unrighteousness, putting us under divine condemnation. So we needed forgiveness of sin. And in order for God to justly forgive sin, to do so in a way consistent with righteousness, well, the penalty had to be paid. And therefore, Christ came. But we needed more than pardon for sin. We needed an infallible, unchangeable righteousness. Remember how we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, how the unrighteous cannot inherit, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, well, when God would save them, remember he gives that catalog of sins, idolaters, adulterers, and homosexuals, and extortioners, and thieves, and drunkards, and so forth. And such were some of you. Well, what happened? You're not that anymore. Well, you were washed. That speaks probably there of that internal washing uh, by the Spirit. You were sanctified, which speaks of being separated from what they were by nature and from uh, the world and set apart to God. And then he adds, and you were justified. Why does he put that last? And, and what? Well, the point is, the unrighteous, they're not inherit the kingdom. You were the unrighteous. Well, when God saved you, he did that internal work, that washing, and that separating you from the world and your past. But not just that. He did this objective work as well. He's declared you righteous. You were justified. And therefore, uh, uh, that full and glorious salvation, uh, that was needed not just to be forgiven, but rather to have this perfect righteousness, uh, unchangeably so, before God. And therefore, we considered thirdly the method of justification, how God provided that perfect righteousness or gave that just declaration that we are righteous. Obviously, it wasn't because of us, anything in us, but rather Christ died for our sins, receiving the punishment in full, the just suffering in place of the unjust, that he might bring us to God, or the one who knew no sin was made sin. He was regarded and treated as sin itself. And he also had lived out a perfect righteousness for us as our representative that is now credited to our account, if you please. It is now imputed to us. Remember how he was born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law and well uh, that we should receive the adoption of sons which included being declared and forever treated as perfectly righteous. And so therefore as our sin was charged to him Romans 5 5:19 he said not not charging us or imputing us our sins but rather he who knew no sin was made sin. So his righteousness is charged to us that we should be made the righteousness of God in him not talking about our personal practice though that does come but now in the meantime that we should be declared forever treated perfectly righteous god declaring what is true well that's the method of justification uh, by faith alone in christ alone in fact paul and uh, we saw from philippians chapter 3 let me just read that for you and paul have been talking about his uh, righteousness that he had in his a religious state and as to the law uh, outward I was blameless I was so clean I squeaked and yet he says I count all that as rubbish uh, it won't do uh, that I may gain Christ verse 9 and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which is from God is that righteousness that God himself bestows 
in Christ through those who trust in him. Well, that by way of a quick review. But now, uh, this afternoon, having seen these things, I want to consider with you the consequences of justification. I suppose we could say benefits that are ours by it, uh, and we do so uh, from a text in which really this is Paul's purpose. It's that Romans 5 passage, and uh, I'll rather read a rather lengthy section of it as verses 1 through 11, and then we'll come back and look at it more closely. So Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing this, that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint uh, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. I pointed out that you know, we looked last week at the doctrine of reconciliation. Well, justification, obviously, is very part of of that as you can see even in the reading of these words well that opening word going back to 5 1 that opening word therefore shows us that this is a conclusion drawn from what Paul has stated thus far you know having demonstrated beginning at verse 18 really of chapter 1 and all the way through to 318 that we're all under sin Jew Gentile uh, uh, even respectable Gentile and respectable Jew, all under sin. Then he sums it up this way, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, having just quoted much from the Old Testament, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty, uh, sorry, may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. It's hopeless. You can't be justified by the law. It, it, all it can do is, is show us as sinners. It can't make us acceptable to God. Ah, but he didn't stop there. Here you have one of those blessed conjunctions when he says, but. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets and by that he's saying what was foretold in the Old Testament about Christ and his coming and his suffering and his dying and he being the righteous servant of Jehovah and all that he would secure and by him many would be justified even as we see in Isaiah 53 it's in this way that God 
having foretold it in the law and the prophets, then provided a perfect righteousness through the Lord Jesus Christ and by faith and faith alone in him. And then Paul goes on to demonstrate that this righteousness and this right standing before God, it's always been by faith. So he comes to chapter 4. He appeals to Abraham. Look at here. Faith accounted as righteousness. And not just that, but then he quotes David from Psalm 32, I believe it is. And here's another one. Now he was also regarded as righteous by faith. They took God at his word. They trusted God and they were treated as righteous. Now Paul's here making his case. It was that way even in the Old Testament. It wasn't like, well, if we just do works of law, then we'll be right. Then we'll be righteous. No. Here's the only hope for sinners. Justification by grace through faith. And then you've got those words in verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, etc. Now, as I've already observed, I made reference to it, I think, in the previous hour as well. Our justification in Christ is of itself entirely objective. Right? It's the work of a judge, not the work of a surgeon, as, as uh, Professor Murray said. It's something outside of us. It's a declaration in heaven, in the court of heaven, as it were. So it makes, in and of itself, no change in us, just like when a judge pronounces a verdict. There it is. It's something objective. It has to do with our legal standing before Christ. Whether you feel it or not, subjective, it doesn't matter. But though that is so, Paul here shows us in Romans 5 that it has very experiential consequences that though that's as it were in the record books of heaven yet he at least emphasizes certain matters that are very subjective or experiential five in particular and so first again coming back to five one therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ now those who have been saved by Christ, have a very broad peace, a very subjective peace. We can talk about peace of conscience. We can talk about peace of mind. We can talk about enjoying peace even in the midst of turmoil. And those are consequences of salvation, but that's not what Paul has in view. We have those because of a far more important peace. That is to say, with God, uh, what we've already seen about our reconciliation. We were enemies, but yet God reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. Alienated enemies in our mind, but yet now peace was made through that so it's no longer as it was Romans 7 11, uh, Psalm 7 11 uh, uh, God is angry with the wicked every day that was us we by nature were children of wrath that's no longer so that sin obstacle has been removed so God's not charging us with our sins he charged Christ with our sins and he then credits Christ's righteousness to us the righteousness of God in him 2nd Corinthians 5 again therefore we never need dread divine vengeance God Almighty is not against us you're at peace always and only as I pointed out last Lord's Day he's only and always for us so Paul begins when we talk about the consequences of justification he begins here on purpose this is the most important I mean without this what else matters if you don't have peace with God you ain't got nothing right but having peace with God that means then well, it's not simply a cessation of hostility. No, it means all blessedness. Perhaps it draws on the Hebrew word uh, for peace, shalom. That is entire well-being. You have peace with God indeed. Blessed and blessed forevermore because, well, we are righteous in Christ. And therefore, we are as blessed even as Christ is blessed. So much so that now by that one offering, we're perfected forever. We have a holy boldness. That's what Christ has given us to go into the very throne of grace. 
Scripture calls it even fellowship with God. So there's the first consequence, peace. But then secondly, in verse 2, he shows it goes beyond uh, uh, just the peace. There's, a, uh, there's the enjoyment of that peace, of that relationship with God. He speaks here of our acceptance. Notice verse 2. Through whom also, that is Christ, we have, ac- this, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And now by God's grace here, he means God's favor. Okay? And we have access through Christ, that we've been brought into God's favor. Through Christ's work, Christ's righteousness, uh, his person as our Savior. And therefore, all the favor that God has toward the righteous, he has toward us. And since Christ is our representative, since his righteousness is ours, that means the favor the Father has towards the Son he has for us. Well, what kind of regard does God now have toward you, Christian? You know, when we read twice in like Matthew's gospel, Matthew 3.17, Matthew 17.5, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Well, that's Christ. But do you understand, as now justified in Christ, so having Christ's righteousness imputed to you, well, that's your position. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's why we're called as dearly beloved children, Ephesians 5.1. That's God's regard for you. You're justified. You're perfectly righteous in his sight in Christ. Or when Paul says in Ephesians 1.6 that to the praise of the glory of his grace, we've been made accepted in the beloved. Well, Christ is the beloved. So we're accepted in the beloved, but the idea is we're as accepted as the beloved. We're in Christ. What is his is ours. And we're as accepted as his. We could even include our Lord's prayer in John 17. When he's praying that the world would know that you have loved them, his people, as you have loved me. That's our acceptance as Christ. It's his righteousness imputed to us. Well, what glorious truth this is, right? Me? Yeah, I still sin. I've got to, uh, you've been justified. This is God's unchanging regard. Here's his verdict, his unchanging regard for you, the righteous. Now, as wonderful as that is, he actually does uh, say something more here in Romans 5, 2, these words that we're looking at, as a consequence, that uh, justification, uh, because of that justification, your stand in God's favor is entirely always unchangeable. Notice again the language. We have access by faith into this grace, into God's favor, in which we stand. It's the idea of which we stand permanently. You are in God's favor and immutably fixed in God's favor because the verdict is final. It's God who justifies. Well, that's it. Let whoever will bring any charge they wish. It ain't going to stick because it's God who justifies. That verdict stands. Can I say, this is a powerful argument against that saved and lost of five-article Arminianism. You know what five-article Arminianism is? You get a lot of, quote, Arminians that they have a, 
eternal security padlock on the door, but everything else they really deny of the doctrines of grace. But a five-article Arminian, I guess he's more consistent, and by the way, that was me in my uh, state after the Lord had had saved Wanda and I. We were saved in a Pentecostal church, and, and boy, saved and lost, yeah, we got that, and here I give you my verses and so forth. Uh, but I remember reading Dr. Lloyd-Jones in Romans 3 and 4, that uh, was the first volume of the Roman series that they actually published. And it so hit me, after we had left five-article Arminianism, uh, and, and it so hit me, dealing with what justification is, it's a verdict that is permanent. You're righteous in Christ. That's what it means to be justified. Well, our works did not justify us. Our works did not gain acceptance. No, it's Christ's righteousness imputed, which is unchanging. So, can our works, our failures to be righteous in practice, can that undo our justification? Can that somehow overturn the verdict? He's given a verdict based on Christ. Oh, but now look what you've done. Oh, that overturned the verdict. That overthrew, that negated Christ's righteousness. No. It's of God that we are in Christ who has made to us our righteousness. It's that righteousness which is from God through faith. Scripture speaks of being robed in the righteousness of Christ or even being the very righteousness of God in him. That's not based on anything we do, have done, will do. It's based on Christ and Christ alone. Well, that would mean then what I do can't overthrow, can't negate the verdict or Christ's righteousness. Therefore, Paul says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? It's Christ who died, who rose, who's ascended on high, and makes intercession. He's not done with us. He's still pleading his own blood and righteousness for us. It's Christ who is our representative. And as long as our representative stands, we stand. As long as his righteousness remains, so ours, since ours is his, notwithstanding our sin. Oh, but what about my sin? Well, I pointed out in the previous hour, yes, that does impact our subjective enjoyment of God, our fellowship with God. John's, uh, First John, rather, uh, addresses that. But it doesn't affect our objective standing before God. Our fellowship, yes, but not our righteousness in Christ. That verdict stands. And that's what he's getting at here. Therefore, we stand in God's favor. Nothing can pull us off of it. Uh, can God find fault with Christ's righteousness? Oh, no. Well, that's our righteousness. And therefore, again, we stand immutably fixed Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. And so it is that Paul goes on to speak of another consequence of justification by faith in Christ. In verse 2, the latter part of it, notice the language there. Having said, we stand in this favor and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. What's that all about? Well, here the glory of God, it, it really refers to what elsewhere he calls our glorification, right? And justified, 
glorified, and the end result of salvation. That is when we will be fully conformed to the image of Christ, and we will be glorified together with Christ, Romans 8, uh, 29, and also 8, 17. Or as Paul wrote to the Colossians, when Christ appears in glory, well, you're going to appear with him. Or as John says, we will see him and we'll be like him, uh, uh, not just uh, sinless there forever, but even having that body like unto his glorious body, uh, able to uh, enjoy his inheritance with him, glorified. Or even as Jesus himself spoke in that parable of the wheat and tares, and then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father as bright as the sun. Well, uh, verses speak of, of our being glorified and glorified together with Christ. And that's it. He's talking about, here's the glory of God. And that's our future. And Paul's assuming, uh, or assuring us rather, that since we stand immutably fixed in God's favor, well, we most certainly then will be Glorified, Romans 8.30. When we justified, glorified. No exception, they're all there. Eternal life, eternal glory. And you notice there in that Romans 8 how Paul left out sanctification. And say, whom he justified, he sanctified. Whom he sanctified, he glorified. Wasn't sanctification important? I guess like progressive sanctification? Oh yes, it is important. Uh, pursue that holiness, that sanctification without which no man will see the Lord. It is important. Oh, but wait a minute. Paul left it out. Why is that? Well, he's really driving home his point. All who are justified, they will most certainly have the reward of the righteous, since they're already declared righteous. They will have all that Christ's righteousness deserves. It's certainly ours. And therefore, Paul says that we now have this hope of the glory of God. And that doesn't mean hope. Oh, I kind of hope I get there. I kind of wish. No. What it means is confident expectation. Uh, that's the idea of the uh, word hope. It, we're so expecting it. We're so confident of it. Uh, that's us. And he talks later in chapter 8 about how it's by this hope that we are looking ahead with this great confidence. And he's saying this. Since we're justified, we have this confident expectation of being glorified. And because nothing can hinder it now that we're justified, now that we're righteous in Christ, we confidently expect to be glorified together with him. And in fact, he says more, it's so certain, and we are to be so confident of this, that he says, we now rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That is to say, we now rightly have this great joy in our eternal glory. It's so certain and sure. It's a strong word translated rejoice here. It's not simply, well, we're glad, you know, we're going to heaven. We're kind of glad about that. In fact, it's, it's even stronger than that word rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say it's stronger than that. It's the same word translated glory when we come to verse 3. The New American Standard translates it exult. Uh, it's Ephesians 2 translated boast. You know, kind of knowing an overflowing joy in, in something that we're confident in and, and happy about. So you said to this little child, uh, we're going to go out to Dairy Queen and get some ice cream, maybe even a blizzard, right? We'll go get that. And so the kid takes you at your word, and that kid is in, well, elated indeed 
right, that here we're going to go and we're going to get ice cream. And yeah, sure, that's, and so the child is very eager and overflowing and exulting in that. Well, that's a very dim picture, but it's the idea of so confident that that eternal glory is ours that we now are exulting in that with this great confidence. How can you be so sure? Because of Christ. His righteousness is mine. I stand robed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Therefore, it's certain and sure and rightly, do I glory, do I exult? Here is what is before me right now. This anticipation causing this kind of joy. Because justification makes it certain. I'm that righteous in Christ now and forever. It's actually not unlike the idea that Peter expresses over 1 Peter 1. Let's come there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 4 talks about how we have been saved for an inheritance. 1 Peter 1, 4. Incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away is reserved in heaven for you. So here, that which is your eternal glory, it's reserved. Ah, but not only that, you're reserved. Who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. And the idea of though we're grieved and have these trials and going on, yet he says you're greatly rejoicing in this. It's so certain. It's kept for you, you're kept for it, or to look at it from Romans 5, you're so righteous in Christ right now, in his perfect righteousness. We now rejoice, even in the midst of trials, we glory in that which is ours to come because it's so certain. And this is a warranted uh, consequence of justification. But then he goes on in verse 3, and you notice he says, and not only that, not only do we glory in our coming glory, but he says we also glory in tribulations. It's the same word translated rejoicing. And Paul says that believers have that kind of regard for their trials, their hardships, their difficulties, and the like. Hold on. I mean, I can understand glorying in heaven, glorying in being glorified together with Christ. But Paul, you're talking about glorying in tribulations too, right now, in the meantime? Well, he goes on to show us how that is so. It's because, well, it's not that we're sadistic. And it's not that, well, our trials will earn something. You have enough hard times, it'll earn heaven. No, absolutely not. Notice again verses 3 and 4 of Romans 5. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who's been given us, or who was given to us. The idea of, look what God is doing by those tribulations. He's growing us in grace. Later he talks about he's conforming us more to the image of Christ. So confident are we in our justification. So confidently ought we to be. And so living in expectation, well, it's kind of like James says, count it all joy when we encounter these diverse trials. God's working patience in you. Let patience have her perfect work, complete, lacking nothing, etc. Well, that's kind of it here. In other words, Paul's talking about our view of life in this world. Yeah, there's going to be hard times. There's going to be trials, things that grieve. But after all, we're just passing through. And in the meantime, God is so for us. 
that everything that comes our way, it's for our good. You remember Romans 8, 28 and 29, all for our good to make us more like Christ. Especially, um, Paul is seeing beyond the hard times to the end result. I see what God's doing, and that's what he's talking about here. That tribulation works, these various graces. Uh, in other words, because you are now justified, because you are now righteous in Christ, if tribulations come, you can be assured it's not because God is against you. It's because God is for you. And therefore we can glory because it's God at work doing us great good, making us more like Christ. Because justified, any hard times that come must come as the expression of his love and favor. You're righteous in Christ. It's for your good. And that's why Paul says tribulations come. We glory in them because we see that God is doing us great good. This God who's already uh, shed his love abroad in our hearts. Well, he is doing us good, making us more like Christ. That is a warranted consequence of justification. But now, after speaking of God's love for us and uh, Christ's sacrifice in verses 6 through 10, uh, Paul closes this section with another consequence of our justification. We actually looked at it under reconciliation. Notice verse 11. And not only that, but we also rejoice, same word, exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We glory. We exult in God through Christ. Not only do we joy, boast in that coming glory, because we're assured of it, not simply are we glorying in the present good that God does us by tribulations, but he's saying, no, we also, we glory in God himself. Right now. Always. We're going to glory in God forever, right? In his presence, in knowing him, delighting in him forever. Well, he's saying, no, right now. It's always warranted. Glorying in this blessed relationship with God our Father. Enjoying God, to use the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Consistently, delighting in him as he delights in us because we're justified. Because we are declared and forever treated as perfectly righteous with Christ's righteousness. Not just saved, oh, not just, but in this wonderful relationship with God that nothing can nullify, glorified, in the meantime justified. And this is all certain. And we glory in it. Well, again, what about our sin? Yeah, as I pointed out, our enjoyment of God, our fellowship with God, yeah, that is impacted. That's why Rome, uh, verse John 1, he talks about if we walk in the light as he is in the light. We have fellowship. With, that's where he says if we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's just to forgive us. They've been punished. He's just to forgive us our sins. And so even this does not nullify our righteousness in Christ. We're still in that relationship and remedy is ever at hand for that restoration of our fellowship. Uh, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. And therefore, he says, we rejoice, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're that reconciled. Are you glorying in God and your relationship with him, delighting in him? A blessed reality to you, knowing his smile and loving him 
Always? Well, dear brother, dear sister, we should. It's always warranted. It's assumed here. Yeah, we do this. It's the very right experiential outworking of that never-changing objective reality being justified by faith. We have peace with God. Peace forever in his favor, certain to be glorified, all things now for our good, making us more like Christ, and now in a blessed relationship with God, our Father. It's all ours, right now. All who are justified, because justified, declared and forever treated as righteous. It's all ours right now, because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear brother, dear sister, when he says being justified by faith, we have peace with God. That's you. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you're really feeling good today or feeling just miserable, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. This is you. Faith in Christ, declared righteous, forever treated righteous, you have peace with God. That's objective reality with many subjective consequences. Well, you've got the objective. Now, how you do it in the subjective? Are you glorying in that glory that is to come? Are you glorying even in tribulation, knowing what God is doing you good? Are you glorying? Are you exulting in God himself? Well, that should be so. Might God grant it to be so? How mindful are you of your justification, of your standing before God in Christ? How much is that understood? And how much is it truly believed? How aware are we of it by faith? Well, see what's true. Believe it. Remind yourself of it. Talk to yourself. Believe it. And respond to right. Glorying. In that glory to come, glorying even in tribulations, but glorying especially in God himself through Jesus Christ our Savior. Amen. If you're unsaved, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. And God is angry with the wicked every day. But see what can be true of you right now. God justifies the ungodly. All who put their faith in Christ. Remember that parable of the uh, 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 Pharisee and the publican, Pharisee and the tax collector there in Luke 18? How the uh, Pharisee, I thank you God, I'm not like other men and he's really feeling very good about himself and so forth. I do this, that and the other. I'm not like that old wretched tax collector there. And then you remember the tax collector? He's before God, so ashamed of himself and his sin. He can't even look up, but beats himself on his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And remember what the Lord Jesus said of that man? This man went down to his house justified. What does that mean? Well, it means he shut himself away there in the temple for several years and lived as a monk. And after umpteen years is living that way, he was then able to go back down to his house, and now he's a justified man. This man who came to the temple as a condemned sinner and was aware of it, oh, crying out, God, be merciful to me. And he goes down to his house that day, right then. No works, no nothing. Declared and treated righteous. If you're here without Christ, you've come in here, well, a condemned sinner. But you needn't leave here that way. 
God justifies the ungodly, whoever puts her faith in Christ. Not just forgiven, but forever received, treated as righteous in Christ's righteousness. Will you have him? Or will you go on with the wrath of God hanging over your head? Will you go on a heartbeat away from eternal damnation? What's it going to be? What's it going to be? How will you stand before God? Look at your works. Not in your works you won't. But here's Christ. Held out to you in the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus. You will be saved. Repent, Jesus said, and believe the good news. What will you now do? Might God grant mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your great grace to sinners. We thank you for so great salvation secured for us by such a perfect and glorious Savior. Father, we do ask that we would be more mindful of our justification, uh, that we would truly glory in that glory that is to come with an utter certainty of it, that we would glory even in our tribulations, knowing that these only come as the expression of your love and favor, not as you against us but more that we should glory in you, that our walk with you should be lively. Oh, Lord, that we would enjoy your smile, your favor, and knowing we're immutably fixed in it, and that we should express our love to you yet more and more, even running the way of your commandments. Please, by your Holy Spirit, help us. Make these things more real to us, and grant that we would then live as your redeemed people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.